All right, let's go ahead and kind of put our Isaiah discussion back in gear here. Been off for a little bit, but our first week we looked at really Isaiah's presentation of God. Isaiah doesn't necessarily give us an entire view of who God is. No book does that, not even the Bible really for that matter. Um, We can't comprehend who God is, but Isaiah really straight away brings us to God's holiness and that he is the altogether transcendent one that is the one who is high and lifted up, remember, and that he is nothing like us. He is not common, but he is to be valued. Then the week after that, we saw that really man's sin is to be measured against who God is. Uh, Men often describe or define sin in various ways and seek to be creative in their employment of sin. But it is really the God of heaven and who he is, his very nature, that is the antithesis of sin. Now, God's holiness, I made a point to bring it up two weeks ago, that God's holiness is not primarily defined by the opposite, that is, our sin. But it certainly is in view that everything that is not of God is, therefore, sin. And so we have... God's holiness and man's sin. Tonight, we're going to be really considering when those two worlds collide. That happens quite a bit, doesn't it? It happens in our own soul, our own inner man. It happens certainly as we try to go out, as Pastor prayed on Monday, into the workforce. And and we are worshiping with God's people. We approach the God of heaven in our maybe morning time on Monday. And then we, we really walk in to what is often called a worldview that is altogether different. And that's not even, that's a little too kind, isn't it? It's altogether opposing of God and really how he has set up reality. And so tonight we're going to look at Isaiah and how, we are looking at Isaiah and how he demonstrates that man is constantly frustrated because of his inflated view of self and his inability to control his own destiny. I'm going to make a confession tonight, and this is something that you're probably never supposed to do. I'm sure that I'll get all kinds of, if this was graded, I'd get all kinds of, of, of marks off for this. But I, I confess to you tonight that we are probably not going to look at the second half. All right? We are probably not going to look at man's inability to control destiny. My guess is, is that we're probably going to discuss it in our discussion time. But tonight, nonetheless, we're going to look at man's constant frustration because he has an inflated view of self. And that really does go uh, pretty well into, if you remember a few weeks ago as we were discussing what, uh, how Isaiah ultimately presents sin, and that is rebellion against God and, and man's uh, inflated view of self. So this concept of worldview is really a unique thing that I think Isaiah, uh, you will never find that, by the way, in in the book of Isaiah, but I think Isaiah really uh, demonstrates two worldviews. And so really we need to say, okay, what is a worldview? And so just so that I am Webster accurate, I will read it for you. A comprehensive conception or apprehension of the world 
especially from a specific standpoint. So a particular philosophy of life, how I view the world and how I seek to live in it. Isaiah answers the question, what is man's philosophy of life and how does it measure up to what is God's philosophy of life or what God of heaven reveals to be true? So on one hand, we have a transcendent God, and really that's our, that's our key understanding of, of who God is from the book of Isaiah, one who is high and lifted up, one who is altogether different than we are. And then on the other hand, uh, we have man who strives to elevate himself to that very level, the same level as God. And yet God is actively, that's key, working his sovereign plan. So I have a friend... I'm not sure if he's in here tonight. I, I know I saw him at a grad party. You know Chris Wazaleski? Chris Wazaleski is one of our youth leaders. And uh, he and I have developed an amazing philosophy. Always under promise so that you can over deliver. Right? I mean, if you set the expectations so low, they're bound to be happy <laughs> with you just exceeding it. And so we tried, not really, but we, in, t in high school anyway, we really tried to to live out that philosophy as much as we could. My grades probably demonstrated that. Um, but at any rate, that, that really is, I think... Oh, there you are, Mr. Chris. Appreciate that. Yeah. He's smiling at me back there. That's nice. Um, that really is a... Maybe we could, ta we could take that tonight and apply that to how man views uh, his life. But man views his life in this way. He always over-promises, and inevitably under-delivers. If you think about it. Think about what the world claims it can do. What the world, how the world can claim to bring happiness. How the world can claim to bring about authority, or control, or peace. And so there's Inevitably, an over-promise and always an under-deliver. I have an illustration for you. I'm the youth pastor, and so we like illustrations in youth group. And I was watching a documentary, and I'm a documentary guru, and, 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 and this, this illustration just stuck with me. And it came up as I was studying for this, um, this message. In 1976, Kodak, do you guys know what Kodak is? I know many of you do, but there's a generation in here that may not know what Kodak was, is. Kodak was, in, in 1976, 90% of all camera film, and we'll have to explain that in a second, 90% of all camera film was produced and developed by, yours truly, Kodak, camera film, Way back in the dark ages, before we had iPhones, you actually had this thing called a camera. All, you, if you held it to your face, it didn't take good pictures. You had to go like this. You couldn't talk to anybody with it. And you actually had to put this little cylinder thing in. Right? They're probably banned now in airports. And, and you, would, you would take it. You could do maybe 24 pictures. I don't know. What, I don't, I, 32, okay, whatever it is. And then you'd have to take it out, and if you took it out in a, and, it, and it got exposed to light, it would, be, it would be wasted. 
and then you'd have to actually go physically drop it off, wait a day, two, three, and then they would call you or you would just go pick it up at a given, and then you would get your pictures and see if you needed to retake your selfie or not. That is Kodak film. Kodak was really synonymous with film. Well, in 1976, they sold 90%, they had 90% of the market. They sold 85% of the cameras. This was, a, this was a huge company, an international company. A year prior to that, in 1975, so th this is at the height of Kodak's film developing, a man named Don Strickland, he was a vice president at the time in the company, he led a small creative technical team, and they developed a toaster-sized contraption that could save images using electronic circuits. They would transfer these images onto a, t uh, onto a tape cassette. I'm not going to explain that. Just use your imagination. And they were viewable by attaching the camera to a TV, and the whole process took 23 seconds in 1975. That idea went up to the executive team at Kodak, and it was shot down. They said, no way. We have 90% of the what? Of the physical film developing market. There's no way we're going to give that up. There's no way we're going to... That was their golden egg. That was their bread and their butter. And they said, no, thank you. 20 years later, a small little company named Apple got a hold of Don Strickland and this technology, and uh, it launched the first digital camera. And now probably over 50% of us, well, probably like 80% of us have cameras in our pockets that are multi-devices. In 2012, Kodak filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy. What's the point, Pastor Steve? The point simply is this. The executives at Kodak valued something. They valued their physical film development, their physical film industry. They saw that as their golden egg, as it were. And they made a choice right then and there to bury that small tech team's innovative reality to hold on to what they thought was at the time more what valuable man apart from god and his overinflated view of self is completely completely frustrated can you imagine some of those kodak uh, uh, executives at the bankruptcy, I don't, they probably don't even go to the, their own bankruptcy proceedings. But can you imagine if, if there are some there that actually made the decision not to move forward with digital cameras? Totally off base. Totally off base. So take your Bibles and turn to chapter 14 in Isaiah. And we're going to really look at the first part of man's worldview. The second part that he seeks to control his own destiny. But the first part that Isaiah really presents for us is that man has an over, or, an, or that's redundant, but an inflated view of his self. An inflated view of his self. 
in verse 14, uh, excuse me, in chapter 14, verse 13, we have an example from ba Babylon. Isaiah reads this way, But you said in your heart, and that is that, that kingdom, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. And, and they were a they were in the southern end of the uh, of the Mesopotamia, and so they they were th th essentially they're saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna just expand up, we're gonna expand out, we are gonna be it. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. Boy, if you can't get any more in the face of God, there it is. So they had inflated their own view of themselves. Look at verse sixteen. Once their greatness was brought low, God, through Isaiah, gives them a, a, a retrospect. And remember, this is, all, this is all stuff that's going to happen, by the way. Okay? But what, what God is doing through Isaiah is he is already revealing the problem of man's worldview. That they, have, that, they, that, they are, that they are the ones who think that they're in charge. And, and they're the ones who have this overinflated view of self. And so the statement that they are going to be like the most high in verse 16, in retrospect, once they're brought low, because God says through Isaiah that they will be, those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble? That's, that's referring to their military might, to their, to, their, to their taking captives of nations. Who shook kingdoms, there it is. Verse 17, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities. Who did not allow his prisoners to go home. In other words, they were so forceful, so in control. Now, we're, we're, we are skipping and we're not really exegeting anything, but go up to verse 11. And here the inflation is revealed. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Again, that Hebrew word can mean a lot of things. In context, it, it means it's been brought as low as it can go. Maybe we could say the grave because of this next uh, phrase. Maggots are spread out at your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. In other words, what is the end of man? What is the end of this great empire? Every single person in that empire is in the ground and, sorry, maggots and worms are feasting. That is the reality. But that is altogether opposite of how man views themselves. And just like Pastor said this morning, if we, if we think that that is the ultimate end of man, and Isaiah does not present that as the ultimate end of man, we would go home frustrated too. But Isaiah doesn't present that. And so we will continue on. The inflation of man's present state. Now flip over to chapter 47, please. And so here again, we have commentary of the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. It's relatively synonymous. In, in verse 5, in chapter 47, Sit silently and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you will no longer be called the queen of kingdoms. In other words, they were the, they were the kingdom. Right? The Assyrian, Assyrians at this time will be off the scene. The Babylonians will come. And they are the world dominator. They're the queen of kingdoms. Compare it to verse 7. 
Yet you said, I will be a, a queen forever. In other words, they're it. This is the empire. This is it. These things you did not consider nor remember. And I would suggest maybe Isaiah really means in, in terms of remembering that, that the reality of man, in other words, that there is a worldview that operates, that is real. There are worldviews out there that propose and, and sound good and make people their own rulers of their own destinies. But there is a worldview that is accurate and right, and it is from the God of heaven. That is reality, the reality of man, the outcome of them. Look at verse 6. They rest in their present, excuse me, in their past performance. So they, they had a, they, they're considering their present prowess there in verses 5 and 7. Again, this is looking down the road. This is verse 6. Moving forward in prophecy, now looking back, they will say, I was angry with my people. This is God here. I was angry with my people. I profaned my, my heritage and, 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 and gave them into your hand. In other words, this is all God's plan anyway. Right? So the Babylonians didn't raise to power. The Assyrians didn't raise to power. Cyprus didn't raise... These are mere, as Isaiah chapter 10, I think it is, states, they are mere axes in God's hand. They are tools. I gave them into your hand. You did not show mercy to them. Once uh, on the age you, you made your yoke very heavy. On the aged, excuse me, you made your your yoke very heavy. In other words, they were so ruthless, they were so abusive, they were so cruel because they saw themselves as the end-all be-all. And so that really is a commentary on, on how they really got carried away with their own power. They rest in their future. Look at verse 8 of chapter 47. Now, then hear this, you sensual one who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am, and this should ring a bell from the first sermon, I am, and there is no one besides me. That's what God says of himself, isn't it, in the book of Isaiah? Over and over again, you go to chapter 40 and, 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 and you move on. I am the Lord, and there is none other. And yet that was the very disposition that this empire had, and empires prior and empires since. And really... Truth be told, men today, I am, and there is no one besides me. I will not sit as a widow. It's not going to happen to me. What happened to the Assyrians isn't going to happen to me, nor no loss of children. So they rest in their future. They rest in their self-assessment. Because of time, uh, just look at verse 10. They say that again. Uh, they've got, verses 9 is really discussing all the resources that they have, their sorcerers, uh, their power, um, their, their own wisdom. And at the end of verse 10, it says, For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. Again, the key term that elevates themselves above God. Apart from God, an inflated view of self will be frustrated and ultimately leave to judgment. And, and that's really where we're going to pick up in verse 12, chapter 47. So their inflated view is going to land them in frustration, certainly, 
Just like in today's day and age, when, when one walks into the workplace and they have an over, and, and, and they think that they are well above everybody else. Right? Little frustration there when, when, when it smacks them in the face that they're not the, the best thing that their mom and grandma told them that they were this whole time. Right? Teachers, you have to deal with that, I'm sure. Right? Wives, you have to deal with that with your husbands. Right? Apart from God, an inflated view of self not only leads to frustration, but it will ultimately be judged, my friends. And so this worldview that stands in direct opposition to God, it seems at the present that they're getting away with it. Doesn't it? I mean, have you ever seen those shows? You know, those super mega yacht shows of the rich and famous? I don't, I, I don't know <laughs> why, but I sat through one. It made me want a yacht. Go figure. Right? Off the Mediterranean somewhere. But I mean, there's a helipad, there's a scuba uh, launch pit, I mean, a, a submarine launch pit. I mean, there's, there's a, a tender boat that's like the size of the, a giant boat in Lake Erie so that they can go to, the, go to the shore if they want to. Oh, and by the way, that helipad's there, right? Because the captain will take the yacht across the world and then the owner will fly in and helipad to it because he doesn't want to spend all that time on his boat. Right. Seems like they win. Maybe. Some of you say that doesn't sound like a a good idea, and it's probably not. But look at verse 12, back to the point of judgment. Stand fast. Now in your spells. Now obviously this is, this is ironic in a sense or, and, and, and condemning. And in your many sorceries with which you have labored, and that's, that's really referencing up above in, chap, in verses 9 and etc., that which they were leaning on for their success, with which you have labored from your youth. This was a way of life. This was their worldview, my friends. And, and there is a worldview that may not, be, may not have spells and sorceries, but there's fame and there's power to be had still today. And it is inculcated from youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you may cause trembling. Look at verse 13. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let not the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moon, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm by, nor a fire to sit before. So have those become to you with whom you have labored. You have trafficked with you from your youth. Each has wandered in his own way. We could write there, well, that's, that's essentially a worldview apart from the God of heaven. Their worldview is, is misaligned. They have wandered from God, is really where Isaiah is getting at, in his own way. There is none to save you. That's Isaiah's answer to back in verse 10 and back in verse 8 when they say, I am and there is no one beside me. God says, no, 
No, my friends, there is none to save you. All that you rely on will be burned up. It will disappear like, like a fire that goes out. And you will be left to your own devices. And how good is that? How good is that? You know, frustration leads to gimmicks. That's a word that Pastor Kent and I use a lot when we're, when we're talking about tools. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of gimmicks out there. Um, for some reason, all the pastors on staff had the paint at one point or another. And there's plenty of gimmicks in the painting world. Sherwin-Williams was notorious for this at, at I don't know why, but they, they would always have this gimmick thing that they would try to pass off on probably not the professionals, probably the DIYers that came in. And, and, and these were tools that were supposed to cut corners, make it easier, not have to use tape. That was a big one, right? There, were, there was a whole gimmick industry on, on not having to use tape. <laughs> you can't do it without tape, okay? All right, there's a plug for 3M, All right? If you want it nice. All right, there's a whole lot of gimmicks. And really, when it comes to worldview, my friends, there are a lot of gimmicks. There are a lot of things that claim to be the end all, be all. Cut corners and make life easier. And those extra helpers, they won't solve the misalignment problem of that worldview. It will always come down to verse 15. Each has wandered in his own way. And what does that lead to? My friends, that leads to there is none to save you. None. And so the gimmicks, the helpers, won't solve the misalignment problem. Medications, self-help groups, social programs, sabbaticals, whatever it is, it's not going to solve the problem. There's only one way to solve the frustration that man has. And as we walk into work tomorrow, take hope, because we won't be able to develop this further because of time, but take hope that you, my friends, through a regenerated person, a regenerated mind, knowing the Word of God, having the Spirit of God, have the right world view. The one that does not lead to frustration. The one that ultimately do, does not lead to, there is none to save you. You have in your hands tonight and even indwelling in you the Word of God, the Spirit of God. And He has given us His reality. And so as we walk into work tomorrow, you and I, we can, we can be a beacon of light and hope, but we also need to be incredibly patient with those who just don't have the same worldview with those who, don't have, who have a misalignment problem. And so through your life, through your testimony, through your word ministry, your words ministry, over time, 
will be the, the, the place that people go to to take counsel, to take help, and maybe, just maybe, take the God of heaven as their Savior. All right, let's pray together. Father, it's an incredibly short time, but uh, we trust that at least setting up the, the paradox that Isaiah gives to us of, of your reality and yet how men and women outside of you, apart from you, really live their life. And they can have, Isaiah teaches us, they can have the greatest toys, they can have the yachts with the helipads, they can have all that their hearts want, but at the end of the day, they are all the more frustrated. And their judgment is all the more sure, sure apart from you. And so Isaiah demonstrates for us that we must trust the high and lifted up one, the Holy One of Israel. We must trust in Him and we must submit in Him. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And it is only when we submit to Him, in Him, that we can joyfully commit our lives and our destiny to Him. Thank you for this time. Bless the discussions now to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.